Okay, so we have come as far as the life of Isaac, uh, chapter 25 now. We've come really to the end of looking at uh, Abraham, but I just want to have just a quick uh, refresh in a sense of what we've looked at in terms of Abraham, where he's come from. Uh, We actually see the journey uh, from a scriptural point of view beginning chapter 11 of Genesis. Uh, It's back in verse 31 there that we read of Abraham's father, Terah, it took his son Abraham and his grandson Lot, uh, the son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, his son Abraham's wife, and they went out with them from Ur of the Chaldees. Now that's where they'd lived, this idol-worshipping place, um, to go to the land of Canaan. Uh, and they came to Haran, and we're told, and they dwelt there. Now when we get to chapter 12, we find that this call that, that God gives to Abraham uh, is made, and the promise that is given there. In the first three verses we read, Now the Lord had said to Abraham, Get out of your country, from your family, from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. What an incredible statement that God makes to this man, Abraham. You know, this man who's grown up in a a culture where multiple deities would have been worshipped, where all sorts of things would have been accepted. And yet there was still, even at this time, this is sometime after the flood, after the Tower of Babel, even at this point there was the knowledge of the one true God. And that knowledge still existed around the world. It's very interesting. There's a a book which uh, Richard, one of the uh, trustees of CSM, or one of the advisors to CSM, uh, Creation Science Movement, has written, just looking at the Chinese and how their language and the characters you have in China are all derived from Genesis, from that post-flood, post-Babylon era. And that the early worship of the Chinese was just like we read in Scripture. They had blood sacrifices, they had all of these things. So at that time, around the world, there was still the knowledge of the one true God. Abraham, of course, stands out amongst all these people, and God says, I'm going to use that man. And makes this incredible declaration that not only he will be a blessing and his family uh, will be blessed, but the whole world will be blessed through him. And of course through his descendants and ultimately through the seed of the woman that passes down now from Adam via Noah coming down through now Abraham and then finally down through David's line to the Messiah himself. Who, of course, is the one who's brought ultimate blessing to those that are willing to accept. Well, Abraham finally does reach the promised land after that kind of little um, stay in Haran. When his father dies, he finally then moves down to the land of Canaan at the age of 75. Chapter 16, though, uh, we see Abraham trying to help God a little bit fulfill that promise. Uh, he takes Hagar, and of course, Ishmael is born, and so on. And we went through all the details of that. Uh, Abraham was 86 years old at that point. But God still reiterated that promise in chapter 17, reaffirming what he'd said to him. And the fact that actually it was going to be in Isaac, this child as yet unborn, through whom God was going to fill these promises. And finally, we get to Abraham being 99 years old. And we read in chapter 17, when Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said to him, I am Almighty God, walk before me and be blameless, and I will make my covenant between me and you, and will multiply you exceedingly. And then Abraham fell on his face, 
And God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be a father of many nations. Now, this is particularly applicable as we go into the chapter this morning. Because no longer shall your name be called Abraham, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you a father of many nations. And I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you. Now, we're going to see this fulfilled as we look at this study this morning. Now, chapter 21, of course, uh, Isaac is actually then fine. We find he's born uh, to Abraham and Sarah when Abraham is 100 years old. And in chapter 23, as we saw, Sarah dies at 127 years old. Abraham, by that point, is 137. And then we go on to chapter 24. Isaac marries Rebekah of the family uh, back in Haran. Uh, Isaac's, uh, sorry, Abraham's servant is sent back to go and find a bride for Isaac. And we looked at that lovely model of the, the marriage between Christ and his bride that's given to us in chapter 24. At which point Abraham is then 140. And you kind of think that that's it. You know, we've got to the end of Abraham. Isaac's going to kind of start to come on the scene as such, which is the, indeed the case. But it's not. There's more for the life of Abraham, which we need to just tail off. So as we go into chapter 25 of Genesis, we read in verse 1, Then again, Abraham took a wife. Now, this seems to be after Sarah has now died. So Abraham then again took a wife, and her name was Keturah. And she bare him Zimram, Jokshan, Medan, and Midian, and Ishbak, and Shua. And Jokshan begat Sheba and Dedan. And the sons of Dedan were Ashurim, Letishim, Lemim, and the sons of Midian, Ephah, and Ephah, and Hanok, and Abida, and Eldar. These, all these, were the children of Keturah. So this lady who Abraham marries, we're not told how they met, but uh, at this point Abraham then takes her. Uh, we told, actually we'll mention this as well, uh, in Chronicles that she's actually uh, a concubine. In 1 Chronicles chapter 132, uh, her name means incense. I'm not sure what you do with that, but that's the meaning of her name. But it's clearly there's, there's some interesting things that come out when we look at the, the background, the details of the names here. These are the six sons that we've just had listed. So Zimran comes from the root meaning singing. Yokshan is the one who snares or snaring is the idea. Midan means contention. Midian means strife. Ishbak, he will leave. And Ashur finally, his name means humbled. I just wonder, is this a, a story of Abraham's life? given to us in the names of these children that he has at this stage. You know, he's been through a lot, he's seen a lot. And those names, in the order they're given, do seem to kind of tell the story of Abraham's life. As God calls him and promises his, this blessing, no doubt in his heart they would have been rejoicing and singing. But how very quickly he became snared as he tried to help God, which led to that contention, that led to that strife. And of course, Ishmael then, leaving but at the end of Abraham's life, being humbled as he looked back and seeing all that God had accomplished. That God's plan was perfect and complete. So, just an interesting aside there. Two of those six sons in this uh, genealogy, we're told uh, a little more about them. Uh, we give an extended genealogy to Jokshan and Midian. First of all, let's look at Jokshan. Again, uh, one who snares or snarer. We're told he has two sons, Sheba and Dedan. Now, interesting to us because uh, Sheba means seven, as a name we've come across elsewhere, but uh, approximately a thousand years from this point, 
we're going to get to a time when the queen of Sheba, the place that Sheba ends up settling, it becomes obviously a civilization there, um, and a subsequent queen of Sheba will come and visit another one of Abraham's descendants, of course, King Solomon, and it's recorded for us in First Kings chapter 10. The most likely location of Sheba is modern-day Yemen. If you look at that on the map, you can see down the bottom there uh, the area of Yemen. That seems to be the area uh, that we have for uh, those descendants of Abraham at that point. The other uh, son of Yokshan was Dedan. Uh, now, Dedan just means low country. I don't know a huge amount about it, but uh, seemingly the location would have been the former capital of Arabia, a place called Al-Ula. Uh, again, you can see that on the map right down at the bottom there. So that seems to be the area. There are the remains and excavations done of this place to this day. So all these places, again, that Scripture speaks of, uh, archaeologists and so on have found and corroborated that the Bible speaks of real places, real events, real people, as always. Interesting though, Sheba and Dedan, and this may be why they're kind of highlighted here, they appear later in Scripture in a prophetic capacity. Now, it's actually during the Magog invasion of Israel that we have recorded in the book of Ezekiel in chapter 38. Uh, we just read there that Sheba, Dedan, and the merchants of Tarshish and all the young lions will say to you, have you come to take a plunder? Have you gathered your army to take booty, to carry away silver and gold, to take away livestock and goods, to take great plunder? It's speaking of a time that I believe is right on our horizon. It could even be this next week. I mean, we are really as close as this now. When we're going to see what seems to be from Scripture, uh, an Islamic-led Russian invasion of Israel. That's what it seems to be from Scripture. And these other nations, Sheba and Dedan, particularly as we've just seen on the map there, the areas of Saudi Arabia... The merchants of Tarshish, now there are a number, and I'm one of them, that think that Tarshish, the references in Scripture, were probably the British Isles. We know that Tarshish was a great source of tin. Because notice also, it speaks of Tarshish and all their young lions. Just an interesting phrase. Of course, lions associated with this country, and so on. And the, the nations that have grown or been born from this country, of course, Australia. Uh, a number of uh, British people uh, were sent to Australia. A number of people from this country have ended up going over to America and at various other places around the world as well. So it seems to be suggesting here that when this invasion of Israel takes place, that these other nations, Saudi Arabia, arguably Britain, America, Australia, so on, will stand back. They won't get involved. They'll watch. They'll kind of pose a few questions, but they won't get involved in what's happening, which means that they're not standing up for Israel and fighting for Israel. So... A separate study in itself, but just interesting, this is where, again, we see Sheba and Dedan occur prophetically. Midian is the other one whose genealogy we're given a little bit more detail. Again, his name meaning strife, kind of apt in many ways. Uh, one of uh, his sons we find is um, Ephah, which means gloomy. So uh, it's, a, it's an interesting name for a child uh, when they're born. What shall we call our baby? Uh, gloomy is a good one. Um, if a gazelle, that's a, a, a nicer name um, to be given. Uh, Hanok, which means teaching, comes from the same root as Enoch, which also means teaching. Abida is my father knows. And Eldar, God has known. So just an interesting list here. Again, I'm not sure what we can make out of those names, whether there's any kind of um, lesson to be drawn from that. Maybe uh, that if you do some 
more diligent study, you might draw something from those. But those are the names of Midian. Of course, we know where Midian ends up settling. Uh, it's on that area just to the side of this arm of the Red Sea. You've got the Red Sea going up and then the Gulf of, of Aqaba uh, going up on the, as you're looking at the map, on the right-hand side. And it's on the right-hand side that we believe that Israel crosses. They leave Egypt. They come down into the Sinai Peninsula, as it's known, crossing over into the area of Midian. Because that was the place that Moses had been. If you remember when he fled from Egypt, he went to Midian. And he stays in Midian, and it's when he's in Midian, he goes to the backside of the desert, and that's where he sees this burning bush. And God says, I want you to bring the children of Israel back to this mountain. Sadly, uh, thanks to Helena, Constantine's mother, we have the uh, Mount Sinai is pinpointed in the Sinai Peninsula, as uh, somewhere down the bottom of the peninsula. Uh, and everybody thinks that's the Mount Sinai, which biblically is clearly not the case. Uh, and even in the New Testament, in the book of Galatians, Paul tells us that Sinai is in Arabia. Um, so that's where Midian is. Now, we see Midian connected with Israel um, on a number of occasions. Of course, Genesis 37 is the Midianites, uh, Ishmaelites as we're given in the text, but Midianites that carry Joseph down into Egypt. In Exodus chapter 2, as we just mentioned a moment ago, it's the place that Moses flees from Pharaoh. Uh, and also in Numbers, uh, we find there that they start to oppose the children of Israel and cause them problems. And then in the book of Judges, of course, it's the Midianites uh, that come against Israel that God raises up Gideon, this young man, the least of his family, of the least of the tribes of Israel, and God calls him. And calls him, you mighty man of valor. And kind of Gideon's looking around for someone behind him. And God said, no, no, you. And it's interesting how God calls the things that are not as though they are. You know, and God sees us, not just as sometimes we see ourselves, but he sees us with all the potential and the opportunity and the possibility of a life that is given over to God and with the Holy Spirit working through us. Gideon is a great example of what God can do in a simple life that's just obedient and willing to, to yield to him. Well, we just uh, to make it a little bit easier there, the descendants, again, of Abraham, of course, uh, looking at the, the wives, we know, of course, Sarah, Hagar, we've just been talking about Keturah. Uh, Isaac is the only child that comes from Sarah. Hagar, of course, gives birth to Ishmael, and then those sons we've just looked at from Keturah, uh, with Sheba and Dedan, and then the descendants of Midian as well. Um, again, just to clarify, so Sheba and Dedan, the area of Saudi Arabia, um, and then the Midianites, typically the Bedouins, uh, as we also kind of know them or refer to them uh, today. Just notice also uh, that the Arabian tribes are not descended from Ishmael, or from Hagar, um, but actually from uh, Abraham's concubine that we're looking at here, Keturah. Uh, we, we kind of use connotatively the idea of Arabs, uh, if I, all of those we tend to broadly label as Arabs and we include in amongst that of course Ishmael and his descendants uh, the kings that came from him um, and then Esau as well so they tend to get all lumped in together um, but uh, strictly speaking it would be more the descendants of Keturah okay let's carry on let's jump into verse 5 and Abraham gave all that he had unto Isaac now, this is really interesting because notice what we read here. Abraham gave all that he had unto Isaac, but unto the sons of the concubines, which Abraham had, Abraham gave gifts and sent them away from Isaac his son while he yet lived, eastward unto the east country. And these are the days of the years of Abraham's life, which he lived a hundred, threescore, and fifteen years. 
Now, it's just an interesting thing here because clearly he's there, all is given unto Isaac, but then out of what Abraham has, he then gives gifts, in a sense, out of the inheritance of Isaac to the others as well. And, of course, we see a lovely picture because this is just like God the Father through Christ. In John 16, verse 15, we read that all things that the Father has are mine. Everything was given to Jesus. Therefore, I said that he will take of mine and declare it to you. You see, we have blessings through Christ, but all things have been given to Christ. There's a lovely model that's intentionally set up here in the text. Again, uh, all the sons of the concubines are clearly sent away. Uh, now, that's the sons of Keturah. And see, they all had first-hand knowledge of God through Abraham. And, and they're given gifts from the inheritance of Isaac. But sadly, they all become enemies of Israel. As we go forward and we'll see this played out through the rest of the Old Testament. Verse 8 says, Then Abraham gave up the ghost and died in a good old age, an old man full of years and was gathered to his people. So Abraham dies at the age of 175. And the expression here we've got, gave up the ghost. We have the same expression used of Jesus. That Jesus gave up the ghost. Jesus, when he died, the spirit went back to God the Father. Now, if you want to just turn uh, to the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, I haven't got the slides here, but you can just turn and have a quick look yourself. It's just an interesting uh, couple of comments we find. Solomon gives us the book of Ecclesiastes. And... Let's just go to chapter 3, verse uh, 21 to start with. Because we're just told there, in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, just before Song of Solomon, just before Isaiah, so almost in the middle of your Bible. It's kind of, it's kind of a worthwhile one just because I'm making note of. Because it says, I'm just going to read verse 20 as well. All go unto one place, all are the dust, and all turn to dust again. And this is, who knows the spirit of the man that goes upward and the spirit of the beast that goes downward to the earth? It's interesting, he makes a very clear distinction between man and between animals. So yet another verse in scripture, and there's many of them, that just show from a biblical, from a scriptural perspective, there is no room for any kind of evolutionary ideas or theories here. You know, we did not come from animals. We are totally distinct and separate. God made animals and they reproduce after their kind. That's what God's book says. Darwin's book says they produce other than their kind, and clearly we know that that's wrong. But we find that the spirit of man, when we die, goes upwards. The spirit of the beast goes to the earth. When animals die, that's it. It's over. You know, I try to break it to my cats gently that when they die, that's it. But, you know, it is. That's just the way it is. There will be, of course, animals in heaven, but they will be new creations. They're not going to be... Animals that have died here and that have you know, gone on, that's, that's not how it works. Um, but of course we have eternal souls and that's the big difference between us and between the animal kingdom as it were. Animals do not have souls. So animals are body, the physical part and the spirits, but they don't have the soul, that eternal element that we have been given as well. Um, so we read that Abraham gave up the ghost. Now what happens is his spirit goes back to God who gave it. Okay, let's just look at what we're in Ecclesiastes, chapter 12 also. And in chapter 12, verse 7, when you read that verse, I was just quoting there. Verse 7 of chapter 12 says, Then shall the dust return to the earth as it was. So typically those phrases, those ideas we use in funeral services, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, and so on. The dust shall return to the earth as it was, and the spirit shall return unto God who gave it. 
So that spirit, another way of understanding our spirit is our God consciousness or our conscience very much. Now, through, the sin, through sin, through the fall, spiritually we died. Most of the world are kind of dead spiritually. When we are born again, God puts within us his spirit, his Holy Spirit. You know, in a funny kind of ironic way, we're actually better off now than Adam was. Adam had his spirit, and when he died, he died spiritually. But when we are born again, we're given the spirit of God to dwell within us. That's incredible. So Abraham, we're told, gave up the ghost, died at a good old age, an old man, full of years, and was gathered to his people. Another interesting expression. Um, We see this idea through Scripture that when the saints in the Old Testament died, they went to the same place. It wasn't heaven. They didn't go to heaven. Nobody got to go to heaven until after the cross because there is salvation in one name only, the name of Jesus. And that applies to Abraham, to David, to Noah, to Adam, to Daniel, to all of those. The only way you can be saved is through the name of Jesus. So they went to a place where they were kept. It was a holding place, for want of a better expression. In Luke, we find that in Luke 16, it's referred to as Abraham's bosom. It's a place of waiting until, I believe, at the time of the crucifixion, Jesus descended, presents himself to these individuals who've been waiting for him and looking forward to him, simply so they could say, yes, we put our trust in you, Jesus. And at that point, Jesus leads captivity captive, this group of people, these Old Testament saints, and then that place is shifted and taken back to heaven. So I believe that Abraham now and all these saints of the Old Testament that loved God, that now are with the Lord in heaven, without their new resurrected bodies, that's yet to come. And for any believer that dies now, immediately we go to be in the presence of the Lord in heaven. That's just a wonderful thing. Paul speaks of departing and being with the Lord, which is far better. So that's what we have uh, as believers, that hope, that joy we have. And of course, Thessalonians makes it clear that there's a time coming when those that have died in Christ, God will bring with him. And then then the, the dead in Christ will rise and we that are alive and remain shall be caught up together to meet the Lord in the air. And all of us get to go back to heaven and we're going to get our resurrected bodies. That's the bit that Jeff was alluding to earlier when we were praying for that, uh, for that gentleman that uh, Jeff was sharing about earlier. Okay, so verse 9 carries on. His sons Isaac and Ishmael buried him in the cave of Machpelah. In the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar, the Hittite, which is before Mamre, the field, which Abraham purchased of the sons of Heth. And there was Abraham buried alongside and Sarah, his wife. So Sarah had already been buried there. Abraham had gone and bought that piece of land. And now Abraham also is buried there by his sons, Isaac and Ishmael. Verse 11, it came to pass after the death of Abraham that God blessed his son Isaac. And Isaac dwelt by the well Lahai Roy. This is the place that he first meets his bride. Uh, when Rebecca is coming back on those camels, that's where they first meet. The place, uh, literally translated, would be uh, the well of the living one that sees me. Uh, it's named actually by Hagar in Genesis 16:13, where she'd run away originally, and God had met with her there. And it's named at that point, the well of the living one that sees me. And again... We just see that that blessing here of Isaac being looked after by God, God watching over him, protecting him, and pouring his blessing upon him. Uh, we see this in Psalm 1. It's, it's another one of these wonderful psalms. I, I did a, a talk some years ago at Portsmouth um, looking at the blessings in Scripture. You know, often people 
strive to find how to bless you know, our lives. How, how can we be blessed? Well, Scripture gives us a number of blessed is the man that. And of course, it applies to men and women. Blessed is the man, connotatively, any human being who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. So if we want to be blessed, well, number one, don't walk in the counsel of the ungodly. Nor stands in the path of sinners. So get away from sinners. Don't, don't associate with them or stand with them. Because the, the progression is that we end up walking kind of the way the world goes, just maybe from a distance, but then we end up kind of standing with them. And the worst thing is then we end up sitting in the seat of the scornful. And we can even end up mocking other Christians and mocking things to do with God. So we, it's a downward spiral there. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law he meditates day and night. So if you want a blessing, these are just clear instructions. And we thought, he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season. Whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he does shall prosper. I mean, that, that's the life that, is, that Isaac is now living as God is pouring his blessing upon this man. Now we're told, now these are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar the Egyptian, Sarah's handmaid, bare unto Abraham. So we've looked at Keturah, we're now going to look briefly at Hagar and Ishmael. These are the names of the sons of Ishmael by their names according to their generations. The firstborn of Ishmael, Nebajoth and Kedar and Abil and Mizbam, or so Mibsam and Mishma and Duma and Massa, Hada and Tima, Jetur, Nafish and Kedemar. These are the sons of Ishmael and these are their names by their towns and by their castles. Uh, Twelve princes according to their nations. Now this was the promise that God had given that these princes, these kings, if you like, would come from uh, from Ishmael. And they will have their own little areas that they, they rule over for a time. These are the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years, and he gave up the ghost and died and was gathered unto his people. Now, is that the same people as Abraham's people? I don't know. I'll let you uh, make that decision. I, we, we, we're not going to really know, of course, these things. But there are two places. There are places when those that are believers departed in the old testament they went to one place for those that didn't believe they went to another place and they were held and waiting again for the judgment and they dwelt from Havelia to unto Shur that is before Egypt that goes uh, toward Assyria and he died in the presence of all his brethren and so Ishmael's life also now comes to an end now God had made this promise to Hagar back in Genesis 16. Again, the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are with child, and you shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has heard your affliction. He shall be a wild man, and his hand shall be against every man, and every man's hand against him. And he shall dwell in the presence of all his brethren. Now, Abraham clearly loved Ishmael. No question about that. It was a real heartbreaking moment when he had to send Ishmael away. But God makes his promise, and picking up in this, this section from verse 15 to 21 of Genesis 17, he says, God says to Abraham to comfort him, and as for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him, and will make him fruitful, and will multiply him exceedingly. And this is where we're told, he shall begat twelve princes, and I will make him a great nation. And so those princes then are listed, we just looked at that, that uh, list. And uh, again, some of the names we do know, Nebajoth means fruitfulness, Kedar, darkness, Adbeel is chasten of God, Mibsam, or Mibsam, sweet odor, uh, Mishma is hearing, and then Duma, silence. Some of the ones we do know the names of, some of us uh, lost in antiquity as to the real meaning of their names. Uh, it's just a mixed 
kind of uh, bag here, looking at the descendants of Ishmael. You know, he obviously knew all about God. He'd seen God do incredible things. And yet there's still this implication in this, that there's this kind of moving away or departing from God and the things of God. Well, we've just seen he died in the presence of his brethren. The destiny of these descendants, well, we've seen already, uh, they dwelt from Havilia as, to, uh, as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt as you go toward Assyria. That's what the text says. Uh, Havilia is Arabia as we know it today. So this is the area they in, in, in end up inhabiting. And Shur is, again, the eastern border of Egypt. So typically, looking on a map, that's the kind of geographical area um, that Ishmael's descendants end up dwelling in. Now, from a prophetical perspective, again, it's interesting that we're told that it will be a wild man. Every, his hand shall be against every man, every man's hand against him. He should dwell in the presence of his brethren. And of course, this has been seen um, prophetically. Uh, and we see throughout Scripture this uh, ongoing desire to seek and destroy Israel, and even to this day. They are, of course, all around modern-day Israel, um, these descendants of uh, Abraham through these uh, other wives or concubines. Isaiah chapter 60, though, interestingly, looking way off uh, into the future, we read, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and deep darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise over you, and his glory will be seen upon you. The Gentiles shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together, they come to you. Your son shall come from afar, and your daughters shall be nursed at your side. Then you shall see and become radiant, and your heart shall swell with joy. Because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you, the wealth of the Gentiles shall come to you. The multitude of camels shall cover your land. The dromedaries of Midian, now we've met already, Ephah, those of Sheba, Shall come, they shall bring gold and incense, they shall proclaim the praises of the Lord, because, sorry, and all the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered together, the rams of Nebaioth shall minister to you, they shall ascend with acceptance on my altar, and I will glorify the house of my glory. Who are these who fly like a cloud? And like doves to their roosts, surely the coastlands shall wait for me, and the ships of Tarshish shall come first to bring you sons from afar, their silver and their gold with them, to the name of the Lord your God and to the Holy One of Israel, because he has glorified you. The sons of foreigners shall build up your walls, their kings shall minister to you, for in my wrath I struck you, but in my favor, favor I have had mercy on you. Therefore your gates shall be open continually, they shall not be shut day or night that men may bring to you the wealth of the Gentiles and their kings in procession. For the nation and kingdom which will not serve you shall perish, and those nations shall be utterly ruined. The glory of Lebanon shall come to you, the cypress, the pine, the box tree together, to beautify the place of my sanctuary, and I will make the place of my feet glorious. Also, the sons of those who afflicted you shall come bowing down, and all those who despise you shall fall prostrate, at the soles of your feet, and they shall call you the city of the Lord, Zion of the Holy One of Israel. What an incredible prophecy. God, speaking of a time yet future, at the time when he returns, establishes the millennial kingdom, when Jesus himself will be ruling and reigning from Jerusalem, and all of these nations, these descendants of Keturah, or from Abraham, and from Hagar, from Ishmael, they're all going to come back and end up 
bringing honor and worship and tribute and so on to Israel and ultimately to the God of Israel. And though Israel now stand as an outcast amongst the nations, God is going to raise them up. What a lovely picture in a sense also of us. You know, that we, we were in that place of being outcast and now we have been given all these blessings in Christ. You know, in a sense, what we see with Israel is just a picture of our own lives that God had called. You know, sin caused us all to go off in rebellion one way or another. But God's mercy, God's grace reached out and stretched out and brought us home. And now we've been showered with these blessings in Christ. And of course, this will be played out in the big picture in the, the times yet to come as Christ returns and establishes his kingdom. And so we're told that these are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Uh, Abraham begat Isaac. And then Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah to wife, the daughter of Bethuel, the Syrian of Padan Aram, the sister of the Labian, the Syrian. And Isaac entreated the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord was entreated of him. You see, you remember, of course, the situation with Sarah and with Abraham. They were unable to have children. And you know, they, they, we had that strange situation where they kind of go spend that time with the Philistines and their wombs were closed, the, the, the Philistines. And God causes their wombs to be open. It's kind of an object lesson for Abraham and Sarah. And, and then, of course, Isaac is conceived. And I wonder how much of that was passed on to Isaac, how much of that background Abraham told him. But he now gets this position and realizes that God is the one that can open wombs. God is the one that can make things, as we said earlier, that are not as though they are. Isaac entreated the Lord. We're not, in Scripture, often told how long these things go on for. You know, how long was Isaac crying out to God, asking? You know, it just almost seems like a quick prayer and job done, but probably the reality of it was there's some real getting on his knees, getting close to God, crying out to God. But then God responds. And we told, and the Lord was entreated of him. Yeah, it's almost as if the Lord just delights in putting those things in the text for us. God's saying, yeah, I heard, I listened. And it was my joy and my pleasure to respond. And Rebecca, his wife, conceived. And the children struggled together within her. And she said, if it be so, why am I thus? And she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said unto her, two nations are in thy womb. It's probably not what you want to hear when you're pregnant. And two manner of people shall be separated from thy bowels. The one people shall be stronger than the other people, and the elder shall serve the younger. We're going to talk a little bit more about this in detail in a subsequent session. We'll see more of this. And when her days to be delivered were fulfilled, behold, there were twins in her womb. Now, it's interesting because, you see, God, in a sense, gives this prophecy over these children at this point. We've got two nations, two peoples. We've got two attributes as well. One's going to be strong and ultimately will be a servant. And on the flip side, one's going to be weak and ultimately will be the master. It's interesting how God chooses the things, the weak things of the world to confound the mighty, confound those that are strong. Isaac's going to attempt to kind of reverse this prophecy, by the way. When we get to Genesis 27, we'll see that. You see, Esau was preferred by Isaac over Jacob. He was his firstborn. And yet Jacob, we find, is preferred by God over Esau. And of course, in that little contest, of course, God is the one who wins. And the first came out red all over like a hairy garment. And they called his name Esau. 
The idea again just means red in the name. And after that came his brother out and his hand took hold on Esau's heel and his name was called Jacob. And some commentators will tell you that his name has this implication of being grabber and so on. And Isaac was three score years old when she bore them. So 60 years old when he had these twin boys. And the boys grew and Esau was a cunning hunter, a man of the field. And Jacob was a plain man dwelling in tents. Now, well, that's a little bit like some of us. We just spent a few a weeks dwelling in tents. Esau, interesting. We're told he's a skillful hunter. Now, we've seen that idea already given to us in Scripture already. He was kind of like a, a man's man. But do you remember who else was a mighty hunter before the Lord? It goes all the way back to Nimrod in Genesis 10. We're told he's a man of the field. The field often in Scripture is given to us as a type of the world. Matthew 13, you can recall for that. But you then have Jacob. We're told that he was a plain man dwelling in tents. Now, the Hebrew word here is tam in the, the Hebrew. Uh, it's once translated here as plain, but back in Job and Psalms and elsewhere, we find it translated as perfect. Or in some of Psalms, twice it's used there as undefiled. So it's saying of Jacob, not that he was an ordinary, boring man, but he was a simple man, a perfect man in the sense that He seemed to have wanted the things of God, undefiled, not wanting to be tainted by this world. The same word is used upright in Proverbs. So it gives you an idea of these kind of characters. Esau loved the things of the world, loved the the field. Jacob, far less so. And Isaac loved Esau because he did eat of his venison. uh, Men are normally quite swayed when things uh, please their stomachs. Um, But Rebekah loved Jacob, we're told. And Jacob saw the pottage and Esau came from the field and he was faint and Esau said to Jacob feed me I pray thee with that same red pottage for I am faint and therefore was his name called Edom so not only was he kind of hairy and red um, but also he wanted this this red food as well and Jacob said sell me this day thy birthright Jacob really on the ball here very sharp and Esau says but how am I the point to die and what profit shall this birthright do to me really not caring about the importance of the birthright, not really thinking this through. Jacob said, swear to me this day, and he swore unto him, and he sold his birthright unto Jacob. It's interesting how often in younger years of our lives we make decisions that we don't tend to think about the long-term consequences. Certainly, you saw the case here. And then Jacob gave Esau bread and pottage of lentils, and he did eat and drink and rose up and went his way. In other words, just kind of didn't really mean anything. We're told thus Esau despised his birthright. We'll look more about that in the, the coming weeks. What is the birthright, though? Well, in Deuteronomy 21, which is obviously following on from this, we see it's kind of the, the double portion that was given to the eldest. Why? Because they inherited the responsibility of being the leader and of the priest of the family, typically. That was the idea, being the one who was going to be the intercessor before God and the one who would lead the family. And Esau is really not bothered about that. It doesn't mean anything to him. He has no, no weight. Whereas for Jacob, he sees that as something he wants. Of course, Esau loses that birthright. And again, we see this idea of this, the younger or the weaker one being preferred over the older, the stronger. We see it with Seth over Cain, Shem over Japheth, Isaac over Ishmael. And here we have Jacob over Esau. This leads to a whole big question, and we'll look at this and explore it a little bit more next time. This whole idea of predestination against our free will, and how do we reconcile those things? Well, we'll, we'll try and touch on that a little next time. There's another, of course, we have Reuben 
or Judah being preferred over Reuben for reasons that are given to us when we get there. Joseph, again, over all his brothers is preferred. Uh, and Joseph's double portion, we find, was given to his two sons, Ephraim, and then is also preferred over Manasseh. Moses over Aaron, and David over all his brothers too. So, that brings us to the end for this morning. Next week, we're going to carry on. We're going to look at chapter 26, carrying on looking at now at the life of Isaac, and particularly looking at these two boys and the way this plays out. So, that's... Uh, Read ahead, if you can, chapter 26 onwards for next week. Let's bow our hearts. Well, Father God, we do thank you for this time this morning to come together, to worship you, to study your word. And Father, we just thank you that in your word, you give us so much instruction for life. Father, even just looking at these two characters with Jacob and Esau, Father, we're reminded how we should be mindful of the things of God and not of the things of this world. Father, help us to be plain, Lord, in terms of being set apart, righteous, Lord, not desiring the things of this world, Lord, not being as Esau was a man of the field, just so in love with the the present, with the material things of this world. Father, we, we see also your leading and your guiding with Abraham and his descendants, and Father, your promises, again, your promises are always faithful. And Father, we thank you for the promises you have blessed us with, Father, that we hold on to those exceedingly great and precious promises. And Father, as we see through the whole of the the history of the nation of Israel, Lord, past, present, and future, Lord, how you will never go back on your word. And Father, what confidence we have this morning to know that we are saved, that we are secure because you have called us, because you gave your son that we can have this new life. Father, just be with us through this week ahead, we pray. Keep us close to you. Father, keep us mindful of the things of God, Lord. And just may we continue day by day, just have a loosening grip on the things of this world. Lord, not wanting to hold on to them any longer. But Lord, be reminded, Lord, as we, we celebrate our communion earlier, that Father soon will be with you. And for eternity, Lord, we'll be able to look into your eyes to worship and praise you. So Lord, we just thank you for this time. Just keep us close to you, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. May God richly bless you through this coming week.